Last week it was my birthday, and I got to celebrate that by going to Copenhagen. After a short one hour flight from Amsterdam, I stepped into my maybe a bit dorky dream. Copenhagen really has some of the most beautiful museums filled with art and archaeological finds. I got my bachelor's degree in psychology and I am currently studying archaeology. But there will always be a little part of my heart reserved for art history. So that's basically what I did for three days, visiting museums, walking towards a museum and, you know, eating and sleeping. Which I did not do in a museum, of course. As I walked into the third museum on the third day, I was handed a map of the museum, which is not an unusual thing to happen if you're visiting a museum. I know, but still. I was looking at it and I felt an instant rush of excitement. I put my bag into the locker and since I could not run in a museum, I walked very steadily towards the exhibit. And you should walk with me. My name is Maartje and you are listening to Biographies of the Wicked. We start at the locker and coat room in the basement of the museum. Let's take the stairs because we're feeling very fit today. We enter the main building and immediately take a left. We step out of the main building and we enter a domed courtyard, the Winter Garden. A beautiful place filled with mountains and sculptures that can be hard to spot through the amazing greenery. The entire garden is hugged tight by rooms displaying exhibits, shops and a restaurant. But right now we have a goal. We have somewhere to be. We walk through the garden and enter the Egyptian exhibit. We take a ride into a smaller, darker room. There are two glass doors. One shows an illuminated room, the other an even darker room than the one we're standing in right now. You know where we're going, don't you? We open the door to the darker room and we find a staircase downward. We enter and take the wide steps into another world, into the underworld. When we get to the end of the staircase, there is an ominous figure carved in a stone pointing us to the direction of a door opening. We have arrived. We walk closer to the display cabinet. It is not just a display cabinet though. It is almost like a glass coffin, revealing the bodies of those who were carefully buried a long time ago. You are now face to face with two real mummies. Egyptian mythologies are complex and vast. Today I will only touch upon the Egyptian cult of the dead and their beliefs about the afterlife. Let's dive in. Shall we? The importance of the afterlife is deeply embedded into Egyptian mythology. Its original importance probably lies with the story of Osiris, Isis and Seth. 
The oldest depictions of Osiris are from around 2300 BCE, so the story is possibly even older than that. To put it into a little bit of perspective, the Egyptian mythology started around 4000 years ago. Or at least, that is when archaeologists and historians have found evidence of burial practices and tomb paintings. Osiris, as the story goes, was the king of Egypt. He was loved by many, but alas, his brother Seth grew jealous of Osiris. One night, Seth entered the sleeping chamber of Osiris and his wife Isis. And Seth started measuring the body of the king, from top to bottom and from side to side. He carefully noted down the measurements, and after that he left the chambers again. The next day, Seth visited a carpenter, and he had a chest made. A chest with beautiful and extravagant art. The chest was so beautiful, it was fit for a king. When the chest was finished, Seth threw a party, and he proudly displayed the chest. Everyone was at awe of the beautiful artwork. Seth, noticing how everyone was enthused, announced that whoever fitted perfectly into the chest would be able to keep it. And you guessed it, the only person who was a perfect match for the chest's measurements was Osiris. Osiris stepped into the chest and it fitted like a glove. Seth saw his opportunity, and he slammed down the lid and sealed it. The chest was dumped into the water and Osiris was left to die. Isis searched the riverbanks for days before she found her Osiris. When she did, she hid the body, which was then found again by Seth, who dispersed the body all over Egypt. Isis found the body yet again and in the end, Osiris was given a proper ritual to be able to descend into the afterlife. The most important part I want to take out of this story is the determination that Isis had to get back the body of her deceased husband. Because it was not just motivated by greed, but also by a belief system. Isis had to get the body back, you see, because if she did not, the ancient Egyptians believed that the Ba, which is a part of the soul that contained a person's memory and personality and was also able to travel between the earth and heavens, would be lost forever. The person would then turn into a ghost and haunt the living. If a person had died, there was a ritual that had to be performed. The rituals differentiate over time and between social groups. There were expensive, as well as cheaper options to choose from after someone had passed. But there are some aspects that are the same, spanning thousands of years. One of the best known features of the ritual was to undo the body of most internal organs and lay the body in natron, which is essentially a salt bath for 70 days. After these 70 days, the body was removed and wrapped in linen, 
or old clothing if the family could not afford new linens, and thus the mummy was made. Rituals around the death, like mummifications and writings on the walls of tombs, were important to make sure the deceased would make it into the Hall of Truth. It was no assurance, however, that when they arrived at the Hall of Truth, that they would live on happily ever after life. When you would die, and if your relatives didn't make the ritual, you would end up in the Hall of Truth. Here you would go on to meet a figure, a man with the head of a jackal. And not just any man, oh no, a god, the god of death, Anubis. Anubis will proceed to weigh your soul, or heart, depends on what depiction you look at, against a feather. The heaviness of the soul dependent on the good and bad things you did in your life. A heavy soul was filled with jealousy and ingratitude, and if your soul was heavier than the feather, you would be thrown down the floor and be fed to Amenti. A god with the head of a crocodile, the front of a leopard, and the back of a rhinoceros. Even though this sounds like the ancient Egyptian version of hell, it is not. I mean, yes, it does sound unpleasant and like something you'd want to avoid, but there was no eternal suffering or a fate worse than death. It was just death. When you were eaten by Amenti, your soul would cease to exist. For the ones that did do good enough in their life, the doors to paradise would open. Schooler Rosalie David gives us a description of what the afterlife paradise would have looked like according to the ancient Egyptians. And I quote, The underworld kingdom of Osiris was believed to be a place of lush vegetation with eternal springtime, unfailing harvests and no pain or suffering. Sometimes called the field of reeds. It was envisioned as a mirror image of the cultivated area in Egypt, where rich and poor alike were provided with plots of land on which they were expected to grow crops. The location of this kingdom was fixed either below the western horizon or on a group of islands in the west. End quote. Hollywood's obsession with mummies is understandable. The interest is founded in a fascination of a culture that was so unique, it is almost otherworldly. It sparked so many of the stories and movies we know today. Obviously, the first thing that comes to mind are the mummy movies, but there are so many depictions of mummies in literature as well, even in kids' literature. And I remember one of my favorite TV shows was called Tutenstein, and it was about, you guessed it, a mummy. And yes, fascination may be the most important reason for the popularity of the mummy, but there is also another reason why mummies have grasped the attention of the world. And that reason is a lot darker than just plain fascination. In November of 1922, Howard Carter, a British archaeologist, found what he was looking for. 
after spending months in the warm, sandy deserts of Egypt. Luckily, he was not alone on his search. He was accompanied by a team. Spending so much time together in a place like a desert will make a group cling together. This idea relies on the proximity principle, which is a psychological phenomenon that basically states that being together with people in a small physical environment is related to a bigger likelihood to form relationships. So, when they finally, quite literally, stumbled upon the tomb of Tutankhamun, I can imagine the joy and cheer the whole group experienced. Sadly, the joy was not long-lived. I could not find how long it took exactly, if it was immediately after opening the tomb or it took a few hours or days, but in a grand scheme of things it doesn't matter. When lives are lost, it is always a tragic thing. After opening the tomb, several of the team members died, leaving a dark stain on what was supposed to be an historical event. And yet, in a way, it still was. The deaths of the team members brought on a new legend. And that legend is, of course, the curse of the pharaoh. Trying to preserve the body through mummification is not something that was done only in ancient Egypt. Many civilizations have practiced some kind of mummification. For example, during the Middle Horizon period, which was around 1400 years ago, civilizations in the Andean region of South America made what now is called mummy bundles. There are some similarities with the famous mummies of ancient Egypt, like the use of fabric and the way the body was decomposed. In the Andean region, however, the body was positioned with the knees towards the face in an upright position. And among the aboriginals, there was also a tradition of mummification of the deceased. The importance of this practice is clearly visible when reading about Nasha, or as he was also known, Barry Clark. Barry Clark was one of the Najonji people of Australia. When he died in 1903, his people mummified his body, as was the common practice back then. However, the mummy was stolen by an anthropologist in 1904. Heartbroken, the family tried to get him back. The reason it was so important for the family, besides the obvious reasons, was that the people believed that because the body was taken during the mourning period, the spirit was not able to rest. It took the family over 100 years to get the body back, but he now lies peacefully with his own and he can finally rest. Whatever the reasons might be, we see examples of mummifications over and over in history. Even when mummification of the deceased was not a common practice in society, there are still those who turn to mummification to commemorate the dead. In 1918, the Spanish flu swept over the world. 
By the time the pandemic ended two years later, the death toll was estimated at around 15 million. However, we see that even in the midst of all the horrors of war and sickness, there still is life. And on a small island off the coast of Italy, a baby entered the world. Even though she had the love of her family, they could not protect her from the deadly results of the pandemic. She died, just one week shy of two years old. Understandably heartbroken, the father searched for a way to keep his daughter close. And it was not long before Professor Alfredo Salafia heard a knock on his door. With the tiny, lifeless body before him, he went to work. When he was finished, he had created what would become one of the best-known mummies. Even now, over a century later, people can still take a look at her remains. Through the glass coffin, she looks like she had just died moments ago. In fact, she looks so well-preserved that there was a whole wave of people claiming that she blinked. It was not just mouth-to-mouth rumor though, there was a video composed of time-lapse photographs that would prove that she was in fact blinking. The wild theory about her blinking eyes finally laid to rest when in 2009, paleopathologist Dario Piompino Mascali proved that it was just a combination of lighting in the room combined with the fact that her eyes were not completely shut during mummification that it gave the impression of blinking. In the end, there is just one thing we know for sure the moment we are born. We know that we're gonna die. And for many people that's a hard thing to accept and that's why things like mummifications and ideas about the afterlife are born in a way to explain why we are put on this earth and also to make the inevitable unknown a little bit more sure. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want more information, you could go over to my website, biographiesofthewicked.com or follow me on Instagram, biographiesofthewicked, all one word. And I hope to see you next time. Bye!